everyone and thank you Julian for inviting me to this seminar and I also want to thank those of IMI are present for being very nice hosts and I've had an excellent time in Oxford I think. Many nice seminars and time to write which has been so good. So uh, what I will present today is a work in progress so I really hope for comments and discussions by the end. Um, and I will talk, as Julian said, about the Portuguese labour migration to Angola, the recent Portuguese labour migration to Angola. Um, global discourses, as well as migration regimes, often build on and reinforce the image of migrants' border crossings as solely taking place in north to south directions. And this project, project of course, unsettles this idea. This is about people travelling in that direction. And one reason why it has been fun or is fun to work with this project is that it often causes some surprise when I present it to different audiences. It challenges our understandings and makes us also remember that the direction of people's migratory trajectories is quite or can be quite unforeseen. So in Portugal in the 90s and early 2000s, there was a widespread debate about how to in integrate African migrants arriving from the former colonies. Then peace finally came to Angola in 2002 after 39 years of war and an ensuing economic boom with two digits growth figures. And then the North Atlantic financial crisis hit Portugal in 2008, uh, which led to stagnation and very high unemployment and subsequently the queue outside the embassy. So this is the queue outside the Angolan consulate in Lisbon of white people standing in the baking sun or maybe it's not baking, uh, well at least when I passed this queue, it was baking sun, people in July, people were standing, a long queue around the whole neighborhood, people standing with a passport in their hand and praying to God that the consulate would give them their visas. So I thought this is something new and this is something uh, we would have to look into. At the second look, however, we can ask to what extent this development really opens up to new development and surprises when it comes to how migrants and residents relate to each other. Are really new kinds of identities and power relations developing in the wake of this recent migration? What kind of social and symbolic borders are transgressed, if any? So today, this is a seminar series on borders, but I will talk about borders more in this figurative sense, in a symbolic sense. But by the end of the talk, I will also come back to borders and borders control in a more real sense when I talk about the Portuguese migration, migrants' relation to the Angolan party state. So what I've been looking into are is on an overall, from an overall perspective is this question. How does the loose African post-colonial heritage interplay with the recent labor migration from Portuguese, Portugal to Angola in the reconstruction of power relations and identities? And I am interested then in post-colonial continuities and discontinuities. And I've been mainly focusing on everyday encounters and especially at workplaces. I will not talk about the, much about workplaces today, more on, on migration related topics, but I have a quite large material on how people relate to each other <coughs> at workplaces. Um, and I have mostly interviewed semi-skilled and skilled people, both Angolans and Portuguese, working together with each, with each other and also hanged out a bit with these people. So, 
I will start with a contextualization of this case and among other things bring up the Portuguese colonial ideology of lusitropicalismo, which is very important for understanding the post-colonial relations. And then move on to my analytical points of departure and thereafter I bring up bits and pieces of my ethnography. So first I will talk in, in, in terms of ethnography, I will talk about the Portuguese and mobile, mobile subjects and then about the Portuguese migrants' relations to the Angolan party state, and then some tentative conclusions. So, post-war Angola, peace in 2002, followed by a comprehensive infrastructural reconstruction, so-called reconstruction program, which has been pursued by the MPLA government under President José Eduardo dos Santos, and he's been in power since 1979. So they built a lot of roads, railways, bridges, football stadiums, high-rise buildings, etc. And this oil-funded reconstruction program has created many opportunities for Portuguese companies and uh, business interests. Uh, when they, in, in 2008, the construction sector totally collapsed in Portugal, and many of the construction companies and construction workers moved to Portugal instead. Uh, the picture here is of Sonangol, the, the um, Angolan oil company, which stands for 95% of exports in the country and about two-thirds of the government revenue. So this is a place of power. It's maybe even more important than the President's Palace in Angola. And Sonangol runs a parallel economy, supporting the, uh, supports a deeply entrenched patronage system. And, uh, Yes, so large sums in the front oil production have gone unaccounted for, and oil back loans have provided the Angolan oligarchs with an easy source of money. In his excellent book, Ricardo Suarez de Oliveira, who is here in Oxford, he has shown that he's, that's President Dos Santos and his closest allies have managed to transform the party state from what was in the 80s an Eastern Bloc dependent, conflict ridden, and incompetent organizations into a powerful and competent machinery. And this patronage system plays a central role for the dominance and stability of this system. Um, so, the main so called entrepreneurs, the oligarchs in the country, are all related to the president and to the central squares of the party states. Uh, so they are generals, highly placed politicians, and members of the president's family, and they play an important role for the Portuguese business. Uh, but in 2014, there, there was this drop in oil prices, as I guess you have heard about, which suddenly meant that the scenario changed again in Angola. So uh, there was a cut in the budget with 45%. Uh, there is a huge lack of uh, hard currency, which means the Portuguese migrants can't send home remittances, which is very tough for many of them, and a lot of other consequences. Um, so, um, I have worked there, as people say, from the El Dorado period to the period when the party was over. So I've seen both the ups and downs when I've been there. Um, the Portuguese in Angola, Jervin, in his book Poor Numbers, talk about how difficult it is with statistics in Africa, and as you can see, the estimations of how many Portuguese there are in Angola varies a lot. Nobody knows. But this just to show that the estimation doesn't 
We, we don't know. And the Portuguese, they mainly work in construction, banks, and telecom, and many of them are highly skilled young people. And then there is a special category, the children of the 1975 retornados. The retornados were those who left Angola, uh, the Portuguese, living in this Portuguese settlers living in Angola, leaving the country in 1975 when uh, the country became independent. About 300,000 uh, um, Portuguese returned to Angola at that time. And many of those who are, or some of those, nobody knows the percentage, of those who are in Angola now are the grown up, middle aged children of these retinados. So, so some of the Angolan, some of the Portuguese migrants in Angola are actually born in Angola and then have moved back in the recent years. And some of these have an Angolan passport, but prefer form as Portuguese. So I will consistently talk about Angolans and Portuguese, although there, of course, are people with kind of mixed identity, but they are not so many. And most people very strictly perform as either or. They speak with a Portuguese accent, or they speak with an Angolan accent, and then hang out with Portuguese people or with Angolan people. So the identities are quite clear cut. And the Portuguese are very visible in, in Luanda. So this is just a picture for one of the upper scale restaurants on, on the Ilha uh, de Luanda, which is a peninsula outside, outside uh, Luanda with a lot of posh restaurants and a lot of the, many of the people going there on, on, on the weekends are Portuguese. Okay, so moving on now to Lusotropicalism, the Portuguese colonial ideology which is quite special. And it's still important, I would say, for how the Portuguese migrants understand the relations to the Angolans. So by the 1950s, the Portuguese Salazar dictatorship had adopted the Lusitropical ideology as a legitimation for retaining its African colonies, despite the increasing pressure from the independence movements and later on also from the international community. So Portugal was the colonial power that was the last to give up its empires in 1975. And according to this ideology, which seems um, quite outdated and strange today, according to this ideology, the, the Portuguese colonial rule was unique because it created a mixed and harmonious social formation. So that was what they said against the critique, that it created these harmonious social formations. And that it adapted to the culture of the territories it ruled and rejected ideas of ethnic purity that marked, for instance, British colonialism. So they said, we are different from, 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 from the British and the French. And it was a result of Catholic religion that united colonizers and colonized, they said. Plus, and this is important, the historical Moorish or Arabic influence in Portugal that predisposed the Portuguese men to intimate context, including sexual relations with dark-skinned people. So these are the three basic tenets of the Lusitropical ideology. And it was interesting to see how people talked in the same kind of thinking still today. So the woman I cite here says that there is the mixture in the world because of the Portuguese. The Portuguese have always had children with the local population wherever they went, this and so on. So this is, is quite a typical quote from some of my informants. And still today in contemporary Portugal, I would say that the lusotropical images play an important uh, role. Um, so the 
notion of Portugal colonialism as unique and different, very much lingers on in Portugal of today. And there is a political rhetoric of communality across the former empire. And this community today is very much based on, on language that we all speak Portuguese, we belong to the same kind of community. And uh, the greatness of the former empire is construed as a counterbalance to the present position as a small and semi-peripheral nation in Europe. So some, but some people talk about a bipolar national character, on one hand saying that we have been raised, we have been explorers, we have been so important in the development in the world, and on the other hand saying we are a very small and poor nation, uh, we have no influence in the EU, etc. Et so there is this very double dialogue. And the photo here is from a theme park in Coimbra, where you can go with your children if you and look at how small houses representing this theme park in itself could be a lecture, but there are small houses, each house represents one part of the empire, and then Portuguese families go there during the weekends and look at, at how the, the, the form of race that's represented in this theme park. And here it says, it's a mind wound over la chegara, it's a world map to concede, and it means that if there was more of the world, we would have gone there as well. <laughs> <laughs> and then children, children travel by and look at this and family show, oh, look, Portuguese has, Portugal has been great. So the lusitropical image is still, I would argue, quite important in Portugal of today. Well, moving on to the more theoretical part. So I want to place my study within the emerging anthropological field of ethnographies of encounters. Um, and these ethnographies um, distinguish themselves by focusing on how creation of relations and identities through everyday encounters between members not how. By focusing on creation and relations of identities through everyday encounters between members or groups with different and unequal background. So, and studies in this field move between the voices protective of members of the different groups. And this has been a challenge for me as an anthropologist because normally you tend to work, when I've been working in Cape Verde, I've been working with people who, in one sense, identified in the national terms as equal. But in this case, I've been listening to both the Portuguese and the Romans and their different visions. And when I write, I really feel this very acute that who am I giving voice to? Who am I, which voice will I represent here? And in anthropology, as you might know, we have a tradition of, of primarily um, representing the subjugated colonized and ex-colonized, in this case the Angolans. So this was a kind of, in the beginning, a feeling I had that I should represent the Angolans. But in this case, the relations of power are very complex and ambiguous, and not always to the advantage of the Portuguese. So I really try, I really work, strive with representing both sides in this kind of, of equal manner. And ethnographies of encounter also, pay attention to interactive and, and unequal dynamics of power. So that is, 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 is very important, the, the power perspective. It's not just it's any kind of encounter, it's, it's, it's an encounter where power plays a, 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 a primary role. Uh, we also, these 
kind of ethnographies reminds us that history matters and can also be changed through the contingencies of encounters. And the point about contingencies is very relevant for the case I'm presenting here. So I refer to both senses of the word contingency as the unexpected and open-ended and as the dependent and conditional. So the encounter between Nagolans and the Portuguese is unexpected because, as I said, as late as by the early 2000s, Portuguese labor to migration to Angola was a more or less inconceivable, inconceivable phenomenon. Yet, as it is, it is something new and it's something unexpected on one hand, but it's also very much conditioned by earlier encounters between these two groups, very much so, and the different and unequal genealogies of meaning that were created throughout the colonial history. Um, uh, in paying attention to the contingency of the encounter, we can see that colonial and post-colonial formations of power shape the relationship between Angolans and the Portuguese. But we can also see that the unexpected character of the new encounter opens up for new understandings of the relationships. Um, and these ethnographies of encounter, they build on the tradition of co colonial and post-colonial studies. And these studies attention to the ambiguity and complexity of arrangements. And then I also rely on post-colonial perspectives. And a key, a key focus in post-colonial studies is to analyze how the ex-colonizer and ex-colonized are shaped by colonial history, albeit in different ways. Thus, an important analytical point of departure is that postcolonialism is seen as an ongoing process, although within a context of dramatic changes. Hence, the post in postcolonialism should not be understood as a dividing temporal post, but as a marker of continuity. Colonialism is over, but many of its relations of power are still in place, shaping images of self and other. Yet, on the other hand, the concept of post-colonialism does not signal a simple continuity. After the colonial era, much has happened. Processes of decolonization, the Cold War, and its domino effect And the Cold War was very, very important for the war, the civil war in Angola. Angola was in, in, really important in, in, in the Cold War. And the post-colonial war period, characterized by neoliberalism and globalization, have all shaped the lives of people in former colonies and metropolis. In addition, regional, national, and local processes have played a pivotal role, as is evident in the case of Angola. In this sense, post signifying that once after and continuance is a better definition. However, despite this attention to changing context, which is very evident in post-colonial studies, I would like to argue that these studies have so far documented continuity much more, or to a large extent, than discontinuity. Many studies have disclosed the American dominance of colonial images and notions, and then particularly among the ex-colonizers. As, as migration researchers, you might know that, for example, much research on migration the disastrous effects of post-colonial prejudice and stereotypes of migrants have been explored. In particular, racialization, as dark colonialism has been pointed out as being a continuous source of, of, of discrimination, of course. 
But post-colonial studies have not to the same extent yet attended to the po potential manifestations of changing north-south relations, as for example, evidence in this case I'm presenting. So I, uh, one, one, one kind of contribution I hope I can make to, to post-colonial studies is to talk more about these continuities than we usually study in service. I don't wonder, of course there are people who work with continuities, uh, discontinuities, but the, the focus on continuities is, is, is stronger in most of these studies. And then there are three concepts from the post-colonial studies library that I, I apply. Uh, the key to my, my analysis, and these are otherness, ambivalence, and hybridity. So questions of difference, similarity, and mixture were the core in the Lowlands of Portuguese discourses about this other. Processes of othering were obvious on both sides. For example, they, both sides would often describe each other in terms of depersonalized collectives. Typical, typically the Portuguese would describe their goals as laid back and irresponsible, and you've recognized this of course from colonial times, while their goals would talk about the Portuguese as arrogant and distance. And this division was sometimes set in school. Yet, there was also a great ambivalence in the drawing of lines between us and them. The Portuguese would often describe themselves as similar to the urban middle class residents in Rwanda. For example, they often brought up the examples that we are as uh, extravagant and as vanity, what is the, the adjective of vanity? We are as vain, thank you, as they are. Um, the Angolans, on the other hand, would often assert that Luanda is not Africa, or even Angola is not Africa. And they would also say that the Portuguese destroyed our culture long ago. Yet, they would not talk about themselves as attracted by the Portuguese, but rather about the desire for things Portuguese. For instance, Portuguese food and beverage were very popular in Luanda. So when the, the um, Portuguese supermarket Kero opened in Luanda in 2014, the South African supermarket ShopRite had a major crisis because everyone wanted to buy Portuguese products and not, not South Africans. In Rwanda, people cheer for either Benfica or Porto, the two main Portuguese football teams. Um, yes, so, so, so there is a strong ingredients of ambivalence, ambivalence in the relation between the two. There, there is a, an ambivalent but strong feeling of recognition between the two groups, and one is not really thinking without the other. In the post-colonial literature, such transcultural forms produced as a result of colonial encounters are often discussed in terms of hybridity. And the concept has been used, for instance, by Homer Baba, which I guess you know, who stresses the interdependence and the mutual constitution of the identities of the ex-colonizer and the ex-colonizer. It's important to remember that hybridity does not refer to any kind of cross-cultural exchange, but an exchange in a setting characterized by unequal power relations. Portuguese post-colonial studies then. What do, do they add to this? Well, um, they, they want to break with the British post-colonialism as a norm. They criticize post-colonial studies for being too much dominated by, uh, by the British academic tradition in, in, or, or the Commonwealth tradition in, 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 in post-colonial studies. Um, Portugal is and has been since the 17th century a semi-peripheral nation. 
it has had a position of intermediation between the center and the periphery of the world economy. Portuguese colonialism has been, descri been described as weak and inefficient. Simultaneously, it was dependent in a near, at the same time as it was a colonial power, it was dependent in a near colonial way on uh, colonial core countries and especially, and in particular, England, as I guess. As I guess you know, at times Portugal was an informal economy of England. Thus, Portuguese um, colonialism can be defined as a subaltern colonialist, which carries a stigma of incom incompetence. And the Portuguese um, post-colonial scholars are very much wrestling with this stigma of incompetence, trying to come to terms with the one hand defending the, the Portuguese tradition in one sense and then on the other hand talking about this, this, this stigma of, of incompetence. Um, and according to the Portuguese academic discourse, the ambiguity and hybridity between the colonizer and colonized, which often is presented as a novel post-colonial insight, was rather, according to, to, to these authors, in the experience of Portugal colonialism for long periods of time, and uh, Sousa Santos, who is one of the most well-known names, he describes this ambiguity as a trivial fact based in widespread miscegenation. This miscegenation is not the consequence of the absence of racism, but it's a different kind of racism based on sexist rules that allow the white Portuguese man to sleep with a black woman, but not the white woman with a black man. Um, and also I'd say that Portuguese post-colonial studies try to analyze the post-colonial silence, forgetting and guilt that still exists today. So moving on to the ethnography. What kind of mobile subjects are the Portuguese? Um, are they migrants? Well, people in Rwanda would say no, they are not migrants. One reason is that they are white and too rich to be migrants. Uh, and of course, as you know, migrant is a racialized and class concept. And it also has a connotation of involuntarily immobility. To be a migrant is often seen in the global world today as having had to move. So when I interviewed the Portuguese, they often stop and say, well, it was a choice. I didn't have to move to Angola. It was very important for many of them to try to tell me I'm not migrant in this sense, even if they have uh, yeah, been forced to. The other reason is that they are, in a sense, too well known to be migrants. Uh, for many Angolans, that they have a shared historical use Angolan space has few positive connotations and is often related to stories of oppression, forced labor, and slavery. Yet, the idea of a continuity is still there. This is a, a, um, the, there is a hybrid character of the Portuguese identity in that it's not totally separate from the Angolan, but shaped out of long-standing intimate and violent encounter. I will come back to this. But it was also, I mean, people would talk about all other foreigners in Luanda as, 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 as and they would rather see the Portuguese as one specific category. They were not migrants, and they were too well known to be seen as migrants. They were something else. They were the former colonizers, but they were not migrants. Um, are they returnees? Um, 
well, they re-retinados, the, ch the children of retinados come back again. They come back in, I mean, to return in the migration literature, normally when you return, you return to something that is yours. You return to your own national or ethnic or whatever place, in very broad sense. But in this case, they return to something that has been theirs, but it's not theirs anymore. And they do have um, a grapple a lot with uh, different questions. Um, in this ambivalent position. Uh, for instance, is, am I returning or not? That's the obvious question. Am I returning? If I'm a returning to, what am I returning to? Do I belong here? Do I like it? Do the other residents like me? What changes have taken place and how should I handle them? And some of these questions are, of course, similar to, to returnees all over the world, but there are some specific questions related to the fact that they are coming back as foreigners to a place where they once lived. Uh, foreigners in the sense that they, um, that the political economic power is is belonging to, to someone else. Um, the, the Angolans rather talk about return as a national reconquest, some of them at least, uh, and some of them were very afraid of not, I would say, a takeover of political power, because that's impossible, but to take over the labor market and take over, over the, the, the possibilities to, to earn money and to get a good job. Um, are they integrated then? In Europe, when we talk about integration, Simply put, migrants are expected to conform to social values and norms. And there, but there, in a government, there is little expectation of this in relation to Portuguese, to the Portuguese. And arguably, this has to do with notions of a superior knowledge and moral being associated with the Portuguese post-colonial identity. So they are not expected to conform to social values and norms. But both Portuguese and Angolans talk about integration in terms of convivencia, that is to, to socialize and live together. Um, and um, and both groups, I would say, pointed out the male construction workers as the most integrated, because presumably all of them had an Angolan girlfriend. And this again is that there's a tropical continuity that you, we are special because we mix with, we, the, the, the male have intimate relationships with, with the, the, the females in Angola. So the construction workers, and many of them have quite young, they were seen as a, as a mark of, of continuity. Um, those, thus, in, in, in conclusion, the Portuguese were seen and so on and so forth as some kind of very ambivalent mobile subjects that somewhat uneasily lingered between positions that migrants, retinues, and expatriates, which I wrote about somewhere else, but I will not talk about uh, the existence of a Dosa space for the shared language and history was constantly pointed out by both sides, although in very different terms. Um, such space does not fit with a global stereotype of the migrant as a stranger crossing not only administrative borders, but also moving to a place where he or she supposedly has to integrate into something new. And nor does it fit with the picture of a retinue as 
as a person moving back to a place where he or she ultimately belonged. Um, the other ethnographic theme I want to bring up here is um, the Portuguese and Angolan party state. Um, so first, the moods of business relations. Uh, the Angolan members of the party state elite are important to the Portuguese because they are owners of the companies where many of the Portuguese work. They are the key clients to the Portuguese companies. And they are also important investors in Portugal, which is a new development that has taken place. And I just want to show you, this is the president's daughter, Isabel dos Santos. It's not my idea that you should read all this, but this is just a picture of her business interest in Portugal, where she has invested in banks, telecommunication, energy, and uh, other sectors. So they are also, they are, they are very important in terms of Portuguese economy. Um, the Portuguese elite uh, migrants and, uh, and their goal of business the influential Portuguese in Luanda, they're allied with the Angolan elite and sometimes protected also by the president's office, which is very important. But there are very often conflicts between Angolan and Portuguese business partners, and Angolan partners tend to be better connected. So when there are loads of, 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 of uh, um, court cases or lawsuits going on between Angolans and Portuguese, and often Angolans win because they are, they are better and even the many most most important Angolan companies have a Portuguese manage, manager, but also these managers are in a vulnerable position sometimes, um, and they can sometimes get deported, as in this case when Melo Xavier, who was uh, high up politicians a politician in Angola, he had a Portuguese manager whom he wanted to get rid of. So he didn't pay this man his salary, and then he ordered the Angolan Migration Authority to steal his passport. Then he called the Migration Authority again and told them to, de de to deport the Portuguese, as he had no documents. So this is an example of the fact that the ultimate power rests with the Angolans. Um, and also, the, 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 um, the Portuguese managers, they were not well connected in they had allies, but they didn't understand, I would argue, totally the, the political game going on. So in the ultimate instance, it was the Angolan business interests that were stronger than the Portuguese. And when seeing these elite migrants in front of the Angolan uh, company owners and clients, they were very submissive, they were very cautious, they were very afraid of being seen as racist, for instance, they were, very, they were really you know, behaving like like um, some busy persons in front of, of, of the Angolans. Um, the non-elite migrants in the party state then. To the non-elite migrants, it was uh, the acquiring of migration documents was a continuous problem. If they had a good employer, the company would arrange their immigration documents, but the company then needed to have a friend at the immigration authority and they would sometimes pay bribes. But for individuals who didn't have this kind of secure position in a the company, there were a number of different options and all of them quite difficult. 
So they could buy a work permit at the Immigration Authority, and I had uh, three sources telling me that they had bought it for $13,000 in, in 2014, which I, I, I'm sure it's, 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 it's cheaper now when the economy is not that strong, but in 2014 it was really, really, really high bribes you had to pay in order to get a visa. Or they could work on an on, on a, on a ordinary three-month visa, which of course was, could be dangerous. They could try to arrange falsified documents for resident permits, for bribing uh, local chiefs, for instance, to to, to write false um, uh, birth certificates. Or they could use an Angolan or Portuguese immigration broker. And we do all recognize these from other kind of, of migration. Uh, situations in, in Europe. Um, those who uh, were the most vulnerable among the Portuguese were the undocumented. And they lived in constant fear of party state institutional practices. They were afraid of police controls, raids, detention and deportation. And extreme caution was part of their everyday life. They, uh, they tried to blend in, they were in the public spaces, etc. I'm sure, I mean, you recognize all these from other, um, um, it's not new, but I'm showing how it, how it exactly reflects what's going on in, in, in Europe. And there were also, I heard about two Polish raids where they actually have been targeting white people. They had walked into an office and just said to all the black people to leave and then have targeted the white people. and its external and internal borders are, is, are pay, uh, painfully present. And bribes is a very costly way for these migrants to stay unnoticed. Um, I said that I have been, been working on relationship at workplaces. I will not talk about it in detail here. Just mention that what the relationships, what I've shown now, the relations to the party state, they talk about discontinuity they talk about new, new power relations. But when I interviewed people about how the Portuguese and Angola relate to each other at workplaces, it was very much about continuities. There were enormous salary differences. Portuguese could earn five times more in Angola with the same kind of qualifications. There were unequal career opportunities. It often happened that a person with undergraduate exam from Portugal came and was trained by a more senior Angolan and then became the, the, the manager of this person that trained him. There was a constant joke about TAP, the Portuguese airline company, as being the, the fastest university in the world. Because when you embarked in, in Portugal, <laughs> you, you, you had, had just a high school degree, but when you disembarked in Rwanda, you had a university exam. <laughs> And I could talk much more about this because it's not, it's not just that it was unequal and different opportunities. It's also that the Angolan educational system is very, very bad. So it's hard for the Angolans to compete with the Portuguese. They're going to trade somewhere else you compete, but the Angolan system, the Angolan university system is, 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 is really, with few exceptions, with, very bad, so that also plays into this. And the discourse, what was even more, more um, fine, 
I was really astonished when I started making these interviews because the Portuguese talked over and over and over and over again about the Angolans not liking to work, being lazy, being ignorant. It was so colonial. Whereas the Angolans on their side talked about the Portuguese as arrogant and distant. So there was really a very strong post-colonial continuity when it came to workplace relations. So, um, in conclusion, and these are preliminary, but I think that one thing that this project shows, and it's, it's, it's nothing new, but it's still interesting, that um, power relations cannot be reduced to the question of access to economic resources, because in this, uh, the, the Angolans absolutely had more, uh, had the, um, had the Angolan elite had better access to economic resources and more economic and material power than the Portuguese. But still, when it came to more everyday encounters between the two, it was clear that this was not enough. The colonial discourse, as the discussions on, on, on workplace proved, uh, was uh, still very present and to a much higher extent than I had thought. The colonial images, the understandings that uh, that um, that 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 the Portuguese um, had the cultural and moral capital was still very big and still very uh, important. So this points to the influence of symbolic power. Then, secondly, it was also clear that power relations differed between different domains. The Portuguese continue to see themselves as superior in terms of education, language, moral, rationality. Thus, there is a persistent post-colonial image of themselves as civilizing and as more developed. But this coexists with a new position of subordination and vulnerability in relation to the powerful Angolan party state. Thirdly, identities and power relations are very much co-produced. Although Angolans and Portuguese often have strained and frustrated relations with each other, they often, they often seem to understand each other very well. For instance, they tended to have the same ideas about what good integration implied and about what kind of moral subjects the Portuguese are. Arguably, the Portuguese were also good at understanding the roots of Angolan businesses, for instance, in relation to corruptive practices. So there was a real understanding how corruption should be carried out, how business should develop, and so on. Um, and in terms of power relations, there was a great deal of ambivalence and repositioning, but some kind of agreement of the rules of the game, lingering colonial behavior on the Portuguese side, and Angolan efforts of turning the tables and creating some kind of post-colonial scorsetting were understood, expected, and in some sense, understood, expected, and in some sense respected by both sides. So there was a mutual understanding of how this relationship should be carried out, and they were, I would say they were, the data of power were co-produced. And then, um, in relations between Portuguese and Angolans in Luanda, which I hope I've been able to show, there is a strong element of hybridity, of interdependence and mutual uh, constitution. The Angolans are who they are because of the Portuguese, and the Portuguese are who they are because of the Angolans. Yet, it is of course important not to neglect the historic inequality of the colonial power positions. 
The challenge now is to stress this mutuality and at the same time highlight both oppositionality and enduring patterns of post-colonial dominance and frame this with uh, the political and economic workings of the other party states. So this is what I have to continue to grapple with, how to, how to bring all these different aspects together in the analysis. Thank you.